every Senate Republican, every Senate Republican is staunchly against legislation protecting the right to vote. Correct, because they would like to make it harder to vote and easier to cheat. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. It is not. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. Also in California, in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN. Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Burden Square Radio, Detour Talk, and all of your favorite podcast sites. Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, An all-around swell fellow still fighting like hell for nearly 20 years now to protect what is left of your democracy and mine. Welcome to the broadcast. Glad to have you here. Uh, The uh, voting by absentee mail in the great state of Texas... Desi's great state of Texas. Yeah. Good day, Desi Doyen. Good day. It was already very, very difficult uh, during the worst of the days uh, of the pandemic back in 2020. A lower court had ruled that the state law allowing any voter who believes voting may be risky to their health could, in fact, apply for an absentee ballot. However, that judge was overturned by an appellate court which forced millions of voters to risk their lives to cast their votes in that year's presidential election in the Lone Star State. It is really hard to vote by mail in Texas. As the uh, Texas Tribune reports, Texas has very strict rules outlining who can receive a paper ballot that can be filled out at home, returned in the mail or dropped off in person on Election Day. Only voters who are 65 years of age or older automatically qualify to apply for an absentee ballot. Otherwise, voters must qualify under a very limited set of rules. Uh, Those include being absent from the county during the entire election period, for example, or a disability or illness that would keep them from voting in person, according to a doctor's recommendation. Or, of course, if it makes a trip to the polls risky to their health, unless, of course, the risk includes catching the deadly coronavirus, according to the court system in Texas. So it was already very difficult to vote by absentee in the state even before They passed Senate Bill 1 last year, making everything more difficult in Texas. 
Now we are seeing how it has become more difficult to cast a vote by mail ballot, even for those who should fully qualify, including those who have been able to vote absentee for years in Texas without a problem until now. Hundreds of Texans seeking to vote by mail in the upcoming March primary elections are seeing their applications for ballots rejected by local election officials who are trying to comply with the new voting rules enacted by Texas Republicans last year. Election officials in some of the state's largest counties are rejecting an alarming number of mail-in applications because they do not meet the state's new identification requirements on those applications, according to the Texas Tribune. Same voters, still same legal ballots, but now they can't get them. Correct. As The Guardian reported over the weekend, election officials in the Texas county that includes the state capitol, that would be uh, Travis County, and the capital, of course, would be Austin, they have rejected about half of the applications for mail-in ballots so far this year in advance of the March primary following these new voting restrictions. The voter ID rules have led to the rejection of about half of the 700 mail-in ballot requests in Travis County for the low turnout primary elections in March. According to the county's clerk, they uh, the denied ballots in Travis County follow a similar trend across the state of Texas with officials in Harris County, which includes the city of Houston, Bear County, which includes the city of San Antonio, also turning down a substantial number of mail-in ballot applications. This because under the new Texas voting law, absentee voters must include their driver's license number or state ID number, or if they don't have one, the last four digits of their Social Security number on their application. The ID number is then verified against the applicant's voter uh, voter registration record. If the numbers do not correspond, however, the new law requires that the application is rejected. Yes, Even if this voter has voted four years by mail and even if the voter included, let's say, a driver's license number, if they include driver's license number, but their voter registration form had a state ID number on it instead or vice versa, that application is rejected. Technical trips and traps. I mean, do you have any idea what information you included when you registered to vote years ago? And now you're being asked, uh, you know, to include a certain number. Uh, In Travis County, officials said they've rejected about half of the applications so far uh, with the, uh, quote, vast majority of rejections based on the new voting law. In Harris County, it's about 16 percent of applications that have been rejected. The Bear County Election Administrator said, quote, it's disturbing that our senior citizens who have relished and embraced voting by mail are now having to jump through hoops. And it's upsetting when we have to send a rejection letter when we can see that they have voted with us by mail for years. The upcoming election is the uh, one of the earliest in the nation on March 1. Applications must be sent in to county clerks full and correctly uh, filled out by February 18. And yet the clerk's office in Travis County says it does not have enough information from the secretary of state in order to provide voters with the information about what they must do to fix their application. They don't even know what to tell voters about all of this. The office said in a statement, we have not received any instructions from the state 
outlining what our office can and can't do to assist voters in submitting a completed application. Well, that's convenient. Throughout uh, last year's protracted debate over the new voting law, state lawmakers were warned about potential issues that could arise from this, from the new ID matching requirements on these applications, in part because the state does not have both a driver's license and Social Security number for all of the roughly 17 million Texans who are on the voting rolls. Last summer, the Secretary of State's office indicated that more than 2 million registered voters lacked one of the two numbers on their voter file. Another 266,000 voters did not have either number on file, despite being perfectly legitimate, perfectly uh, uh, legal voter registration uh, 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 forms. So this is tripping up a lot of voters in Texas. And uh, in fact, Callanan, the Bear County election administrator, says she had to reject some voters who submitted an outdated application form that did not include the new ID field on it. The sources for those outdated applications are currently unclear. The, legislat- uh, the legislature had banned county election officials from proactively sending out applications to vote by mail, even to voters who automatically qualify because they're 65 or older. But voters can still receive unsolicited applications from campaigns and political parties. So, hey, a great new way to suppress the vote in Texas. You can just send voters an application that doesn't even have a place to fill in the newly required ID numbers. And if you do it late enough in the game and officials are unlikely to be able to let the voters know in time that their application was rejected or allow those voters to have the time to send in a new application with the required information. Well, there you go. Harder to vote, easier to cheat. Last year. You'll recall Texas passed this bill over the objections of Democrats and many of the Republicans did it because they were echoing Donald Trump's phony claims about widespread voter fraud in the 2020 election. Widespread voter fraud for which there is absolutely no evidence. Uh, the law does all kinds of other stuff as well. It bans 24-hour voting, drive through voting, increases criminal penalties for violating uh, voter laws. Uh, the Justice Department has filed suit against that law, but it's going to be a while before that is worked out. Nonetheless, Governor Greg Abbott signed the bill arguing that it was necessary to, quote, solidify trust and confidence in the outcome of our elections by making it easier to vote and harder to cheat. In fact, the Texas law, like the others that have been adopted by Republicans around the country over the past year, echoing the false claims by Trump while while he was attempting to steal the 2020 election, actually, in fact, make it harder to vote and much easier to cheat. And I would recommend that Democrats start describing these laws as such. Now, all of this is based on claims, of course, uh, by Trump, but echoed for years by Republicans, even before Trump, that massive voter fraud was going on, despite any actual lack of evidence to support that claim. Well, that lack of evidence was also on display over the weekend in another state where Trump pretended that there was massive voter fraud that cost him the election. That would be the great state of Arizona. A new review of potential 
voter fraud cases in the 2020 general election by law enforcement officials in Arizona's second largest county ended on Friday with an announcement by prosecutors that zero, none, nada, zero of the 151 cases that they reviewed merited criminal charges. The announcement by the Pima County Attorney's Office closes the book on more than two-thirds of all of the cases of potential voter fraud that were being reviewed by election officials and prosecutors across Arizona. Pima County Attorney Laura Conover said that while prosecutors found cases where voters knowingly submitted more than one ballot, she said, quote, there is little to no evidence that they acted with the awareness that their actions would or could result in multiple votes actually being counted. Many of them, for example, voted a second time in person because they were worried that their mail-in ballot wouldn't arrive in time. Those folks were referred uh, uh, to the prosecutor for as, as potential fraud. None of them we're actually committing a crime, according to Conover. She said what our investigation revealed was the genuine confusion about the electoral process, particularly related to mail-in and provisional ballots, and the genuine fear for a variety of reasons that their initial vote would not count. No voter in Pima County, that's Tucson, Arizona, no voter had more than one ballot counted, said Conover. What do you know? The GOP made some wild allegations about, oh, my God, massive voter fraud. The media dutifully covered it. And then now we find out there is zero, zero of these cases that merited criminal prosecution. And yet, does the public even know that? At, at least in, in Pima County. Now, elsewhere, Maricopa, for example, said they had discovered uh, 38 potential voting fraud cases during an exhaustive review of 2.1 million ballots, potential fraud. Those cases were sent to the uh, state attorney general's office for review and possible prosecution. We'll find out how many, if any of them, actually were crimes. But, you know, it's it's not unusual. Uh, there, there was, uh, for example, the county uh, report also found 27 cases where ballots were counted. This is in Maricopa by uh, people who died before they returned their uh, before they before their ballot showed up, uh, their absentee ballot. Those were referred, for example, to the state attorney general for more investigation and possible prosecution. But even there, it's not particularly unusual that people vote by absentee and then they die before Election Day. The AP has now uh, found that across Arizona's 15 counties, the total number of potential fraud cases from the 2020 election, including Pima's 151 now closed cases, sat at 230 total out of 3.4 million ballots cast. So, yeah, despite the fact that many of these potential cases of fraud, uh, by the way, could be Republicans, even if every ballot uh, that that was uh, represented potential fraud actually turned out to be fraud, uh, a vote for Joe Biden somehow, it still would not have come anywhere near flipping the state of Arizona. And AP's uh, investigation also found that the same is true if you include all of the other states that Donald Trump uh, contested. Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Nevada, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. Um, and yet, 
All of these laws are now being passed by Republicans in state after state, despite any evidence of any actual substantive fraud or any evidence of of voting systems having changed results in the presidential race. Remember, a a number of these states have done a lot of hand counting to ensure that. Nonetheless, GOP-controlled states have been using the big lie in order to make it harder to vote and easier to cheat. And that's what Democrats are hoping to counter with their two bills, the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, which have now been rolled into a single bill called the Freedom to Vote John R. Lewis Act to try to make it easier somehow to pass in the U.S. Senate, where every Democratic senator claims to support both of the bills, while zero Republicans support them. But to pass either of them, you would need to change the uh, Senate filibuster rule, which 50 Republicans all oppose, along with two Democrats, Arizona's Kirsten Sinema and West Virginia's Joe Manchin. Nonetheless, this week, to get all senators on record so their votes can so their voters can hold them uh, appropriately accountable, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer will be holding a vote anyway. And with the combined two bills, passed last week in the House and a parliamentary procedure, uh, they will now be allowed to actually debate the bills for the first time. Republicans wouldn't even allow that previously. This week, that debate will happen before an actual vote on the legislation for the very first time. The eyes of the nation will be watching what happens this week in the United States Senate. Just a few days removed from what would have been Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s 93rd birthday, the Senate has begun the debate on the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act for the first time, the first time in this Congress. Democrats have tried for months to hold a voting rights debate on the floor, but we have been blocked each time by Republicans. As we debate these measures, the Senate will confront a critical question. Shall the members of this chamber do what is necessary to pass these bills and bring them closer to the President's desk? Today, we have just taken the first steps that will put everyone, everyone on the record. Senate Democrats are under no illusion that we face difficult odds, especially when virtually every Senate Republican, every Senate Republican, is staunchly against legislation protecting the right to vote. But I want to be clear, when this chamber confronts a question this important, one so vital to our country, so vital to our ideals, so vital to the future of our democracy, you don't slide it off the table and say, never mind. Win, lose, or draw. Members of this chamber were elected to debate and to vote, especially on an issue as vital to the beating heart of our democracy as voting rights. And the public, the public is entitled to know where each senator stands on an issue as sacrosanct as defending our democracy. The American people deserve to see their senators go on record on whether they will support these bills or oppose them. We're going to vote. We're all going to go on the record, and Republicans will have to choose which side they stand on, protecting democracy or offering their implicit endorsement of Donald Trump's big lie. Ooh, I wonder which side they'll choose. (laughs) 
That was uh, Senate Democratic leader Chuck Schumer. The package that the senators are going to vote on this week includes some of the most sweeping changes to elections in a generation, and they are extraordinary and long overdue. They include, uh, well, making Election Day a national holiday, requiring access to early voting and absentee voting in all 50 states, ends dark uh, dark money in elections, for groups who contribute more than $10,000 to a candidate. It mandates that all voters be allowed to vote on a hand-marked paper ballot at the polling place. And it makes partisan gerrymanders unlawful in all 50 states, among other things. So the package is coupled with the John R. Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act that fixes essentially what the Supreme Court broke back in 2013, Uh, I would once again uh, allow Justice Department scrutiny of states with a pattern of election violations. But of course, it all starts with gerrymanders. And while some redistricting experts in recent days have argued that the newly drawn maps after the 2020 census by GOP states so far this year are not as bad as they could have been, others, including my guest joining me next, says that Uh, That is nothing to be happy about. Brandon Center's redistricting expert and senior counsel Michael Lee joins us next to explain how things are going so far as primary elections for the 2022 midterms when every seat in the U.S. House will be up for grabs are now just months away. I'm Brad Friedman, and this is The Bradcast. Hey, this is Desi. The Bradcast and the Green News Report survive thanks to you and your support. Please drop by bradblog.com donate today to help us stay independent every day over your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Yeah, maybe. Welcome back to the broadcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com, the esteemed law professor and Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan's former Supreme Court Solicitor General Charles Freed last month in a clip that we played previously, but frankly needs to be heard again and perhaps again and again thereafter. Uh, Freed was asked on CNN about the rise of authoritarianism in his own Republican Party, where it came from, where it's now heading. The 86-year-old lifelong Republican and former Reagan official made no bones about how he got to this place and what he fears is now coming. It's related to gerrymandering. Gerrymandering is something which the Supreme Court has said, that's okay, we can't do anything about that. That is why you have state legislatures doing things which a majority of their voters don't want done, but a minority is gerrymandered into power and the Supreme Court should have put an end to it. And it didn't. And it didn't because those legislators are all Republicans. They would be voted out. They would not be uh, in control of state after state after state. And if democracy were protected, 
First of all, you wouldn't have the justices you have on the court now, and you wouldn't have uh, the legislatures that you have, and I think you wouldn't have the danger of a reappearance of Donald Trump. I do have a long perspective because I was born in Prague in 1935. Czechoslovakia was a real democracy. And the demons of hell came out and spoiled that for 50 years. Now, I see those people uh, re-emerging. I hear the same tunes, and it scares me. Yeah, it scares me, too. That was Ronald Reagan's uh, Supreme Court Solicitor General Charles Freed just last month. Uh, But while the demons of hell reemerging there is likely to get your attention in that clip, please note where he said it all begins with gerrymandering and the inability for voters to choose representation that actually represents the will of the electorate. One of the key elements of the Freedom to Vote Act uh, is a ban on partisan gerrymanders in all 50 states. But like the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, which would restore the 1965 Voting Rights Act, uh, its critical and successful requirements for pre-clearance by the Department of Justice for new election laws and redistricting based on racial disparities. Uh, after the that portion of the landmark act was gutted by the Supreme Court in 2013, both pieces of legislation now uh, are critical, and they are both supported by a majority in the U.S. Senate, including Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, or so they say. Neither, unfortunately, has enough support to overcome the 60-vote threshold of a filibuster by the entire GOP Senate caucus. So, without that legislation passed, how bad could the new congressional maps drawn after the 2020 census now become for Democrats? We have been citing in recent months an argument put forward by experts that the trajectory of new congressional maps being drawn in GOP-controlled states would result in Republicans taking the majority in the U.S. House in 2022, even if everyone in America voted the exact same way they did in 2020. When the Democratic president won by 7 million votes and the Democratic House candidates up that year received more than 40 million more votes than Republican candidates. Even if Americans voted the exact same way in 2022 as they did in 2020, with the new maps now being redrawn in GOP states in particular, experts have argued Republicans would end up with the House majority, even with a vast minority of Americans voting for them overall. And yes, this is what leads directly to the reemergence of demons from hell or far right members of Congress like Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert, Matt Gates, Madison Cawthorn, Paul Gosar. Take your pick. All who have absolutely no fear of being run out of Congress at the next election, no matter what they say, no matter how disgraced they become, no matter how many times they are actually censured by their own fellow members of the House. But a few weeks ago, a new line began to emerge from some gerrymandering experts. The new maps being drawn up by Republicans were not as bad as they could have been 
for Democrats. Despite months of alarm that Republicans could retake control of the House through redistricting alone, writes Igor Derish at uh, Salon, recent analyses by the nonpartisan Cook Political Report and the left-leaning Data for Progress have found that the redistricting cycle has gone surprisingly well for House Democrats. Rather than redrawing Democratic districts into Republican ones, the GOP has largely focused on shoring up existing districts created in the ultra-aggressive 2011 redistricting cycle, while the few Democratic-led states have not ceded redistricting to that, that have not uh, ceded redistricting to independent commissions like Oregon and Illinois, have aggressively tried to add likely Democratic seats. As a result, writes Joel Wertheimer at Data for Progress, redistricting is going surprisingly well for Democrats. He notes that some states were already so red that it was virtually impossible for Republicans to add any seats. Cook Political, Political Report's Dave Wasserman even argued there will be a few more Biden-won districts after redistricting than there are right now. Nonetheless, both analyses predicted that the GOP will likely win back control of the House this year, with Wasserman cautioning that Democrats already hold 11 of the 15 newly Democratic-leaning seats drawn to date, meaning that there are only a handful of pickup opportunities. Meanwhile, the Republicans currently hold just one of the nine newly GOP-leaning seats, so they have a lot more ground to gain there. Moreover, as Brennan Center for Justice's redistricting expert Michael Lee notes, we start with a baseline of bad maps. This new round of redistricting, he says, will take existing gerrymanders in states like Texas and shore them up. On the other side of the coin, last week we reported on what appears to be very good news, however, from the Ohio State Supreme Court on new maps there for both state legislative seats and Congress. The 4-3 GOP majority court voted 4-3 against both maps, with the Republican chief justice on the court vo uh, voting to join all of the court's Democrats and finding the newly drawn GOP maps to be extreme partisan gerrymanders in violation of the state constitution in a state that has been extremely gerrymandered already over the past 10 years. The newly drawn and now rejected congressional maps would have given Democrats uh, in the closely divided state just two to three districts. And Republicans would have had 12 to 13, depending on how things go this November. That, according to an analyst, a local analyst that we cited uh, from over at Daily, uh, at Daily Coast last week. With those maps now overturned last week, the diarist argues... The worst Ohio's GOP redistricting committee could draw to still be remotely in the ballpark of meeting the state constitutional requirements would be nine to six in favor of the GOP. But hey, nine to six is much better than the uh, 13 or 12 to two or three that Republicans had hoped to uh, put in place until the court decided otherwise last week. If they do create such maps, the uh, analyst at Daily Coast writes, Democrats would pick up two seats from their current gerrymandered four, while the GOP would actually lose three seats from their current six. The Daily Coast diarist uh, Anastasia goes on to argue that's five new seats for Democrats in Ohio, 
which could easily be the winning or losing margin for control of the U.S. House this year. Well, that is encouraging, at least for proponents of actual democracy in the U.S. and for opponents of the rising authoritarian demons of hell. So where does that leave us? Presuming much-needed voting rights legislation fails to pass in Congress this year, as appears to be the current trajectory, just how much are Democrats actually in trouble this year? And, as I have argued, American democracy itself along with them. The Brennan Center's Michael Lee wrote his own op-ed at Washington Post last week, headlined, No, Republicans aren't hammering Democrats in redistricting. They are doing something worse. It begins this way. With redistricting now finished in just over half the states, a misleading narrative has emerged that the gerrymandering hasn't been all that bad by focusing on one narrow fact, that the overall distribution of seats between the parties might not change that much. This story, he writes, misses the full, much grimmer picture. Joining us now for that much grimmer picture is Michael Lee, who serves as senior counsel for the Brennan Center's Democracy Program, where his work focuses on redistricting, voting rights and elections. He's also the author of the Brennan Center's report titled The Redistricting Landscape 2021 to 2022. Michael Lee, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Good. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. So uh, first, is this assessment that I have been citing, along with a number of others, uh, folks like our friends uh, Ari Berman over at Mother Jones, etc., that if Americans voted just as they did in, 20, in, in 2020, if they do that again in 2022, Republicans with these new maps would still end up taking the majority control in the U.S. House, even after receiving millions of fewer votes for GOP House candidates under that scenario? Yeah, I think that, that that's right. I mean, you, you right now you have, under the old maps, you have a bunch of competitive districts, um, and really what happens with the redistricting is that the competition gets whacked, especially in Republican-controlled states, and really there's nothing that is competitive. For example, Texas goes from being one of the most interesting states in terms of U.S. House races to one of the least. I mean, there, there were six or seven competitive races before. There really are zero now, and so I, I think that that is the strongest pushback, I think, to the the idea that somehow the cycle is not turning out so bad for Democrats. Well, you argue in your uh, Washington Post piece uh, last week that, the, you know, these folks are arguing things aren't as bad as they could have been for Democrats, that they are missing something here. And I know part of this, as you mentioned, Texas, Texas, North Carolina. What do you see that, uh, you know, in, in your words, makes this a much grimmer picture than Democrats may be uh, assessing out here? Well, I think a lot of commentators expected Republicans to go out and try to convert Democratic seats into Republican ones. In other words, do a you know traditional land grab gerrymander where you target the other party and you take them out. And Republicans really didn't do that. You know, they they instead drew defensive gerrymanders, but those are gerrymanders nonetheless. And you know, what the surprise I think comes in the minds of many people is that they were expecting like Democratic seats to fall, but instead. What Republicans are doing is they're shoring up the disproportionate advantages that they already hold. Mm-hmm. And I'll go back to Texas. You know, under the old maps, Repu- Democrats have 36% of the seats. Under the new maps, they have 37% of the seats. So very little change. But the competition is gone. And so whereas under the old map, there were a bunch of competitive districts. Under the new map, even if Democrats got 58% of the vote, they would still have the same 37% of seats, which 
hardly sincere. Yeah, no. Um, and, and, you know, even if Texas turned deep blue, in other words, Republicans would have an almost two-to-one advantage, and that's the that's the perniciousness of this decade's gerrymandering. And that happened in Texas, it happened in North Carolina, it happened oh. elsewhere. Yeah, you argued that, in fact, Democrats would have to win about 58% of the vote in order to win in more than 37% of the House districts. I mean, that, that really is insane. If, if they end up, uh, you know, Democratic House candidates in Texas end up winning a majority of the vote, they are still going to be in the minority delegation in the state. When we hear, uh, you know, some political analysts saying that the new maps are not so bad, they could have been worse for Democrats, are they generally comparing that to... The previous maps, the ones from the past decade with the redistricting back in 2011 when Karl Rove's red map project succeeded in drastically redrawing maps with new computer data that were really for the first time the extreme partisan gerrymanders uh, that you know we had never seen before. Uh, is, is that what these experts are comparing it to? Because if we're comparing it to the last cycle, that seems like a pretty low bar to, uh, to compare it, these new maps to, no? Yeah, I mean, it, it's like the bully comes around and knocks down a kid and takes four out of the five candy bars the kid has and then puts those candy bars in a safe, and but doesn't take the fifth candy bar, and then you say, like, well, gosh, the bully actually has improved, but the bully still has the four candy bars, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's really the world that we're in, the benchmark that you use to measure, like, how bad or good this is, can't be wildly gerrymandered maps, and that's, I think, the flaw of this. And particularly when you look down at the state level, you know, states like North Carolina, where Republicans, if they won 48% of the vote, likely would have 72% of the seats. Like 48% of minority of the votes get you 72% of the Mm -hmm. seats. That's crazy. Yeah, just a little. Uh, And I I, I did mention on the other side of the coin what appears to be very good news, I think, late last week out of the Ohio Supreme Court, which had rejected the maps that were drawn up for uh, both state and House state house and senate uh, maps as well as the congressional seats D- did what happened in uh, ohio i know that was actually after your washington post uh, op- op-ed does that change anything uh with with your assessment about how things are going uh, this cycle for democrats i mean it's certainly good news um and you know really the hero of the cycle have been the reforms around the country that have been that were enacted after last decade's gerrymandered map so in Michigan, you have an independent commission that drew very fair maps. In Ohio, you have a reform that resulted in the Ohio Supreme Court striking down that state's really wildly gerrymandered map. And so, you know, if the cycle is going to be saved for Democrats, it's really, I think, heavily because of reforms. You know, both this decade and last decade, you know, California, um, you know, really grew powered by Latino and Asian voters. And mm-hmm. the, the new map creates a lot of opportunities for Latino and Asian voters, which at least in the short run will favor Democrats. So it's really commissions and other state-level reforms that are sort of helping the the process look a little bit better, but it's still overall a grim grim cycle for for Democrats. The newly redrawn maps uh, in in GOP-controlled states, as I understand it, have have been even more extreme at the state legislative level for state House and Senate seats, uh, which, if true, it only, you know, sort of further solidifies the lock on gaming the entire system here, as uh, Charles Freed was talking about. You know, you gerrymander at the state level, that changes the, you know, the way they gerrymander at the Congressional 
national level, that makes, uh, you know, the U.S. House impossible. Is it is it fair to say that we don't put enough attention on those uh, state House and Senate seats, those uh, state House and Senate maps? And are they, in fact, uh, more extreme than the, the ones that, uh, you know, sort of get the national headlines regarding Congress? Well, I'm glad that you're asking about that because, you know, everybody who wants to talk to me talks about congressional maps. Right, and, you know, right. You kind of ignore the legislative maps. So I'm glad that we get a chance to talk about that because there is really aggressive line drawing going on with um, legislative maps as well. In North Carolina, for example, mm-hmm. a third of the black members of the North Carolina Senate could lose re-election in 2022. A fifth of the black members of the North Carolina State House could lose election. And that's really extreme. In Georgia, the uh, the first Asian-American woman elected to the Georgia State Senate had her district wildly redrawn so that now she can't win re-election, um, you know, by drawing it further to the north. And, and you know, she, she represented a very diverse, multi-racial, multicultural district, and now that's gone. And so you see this around the country, and, you know, the, it, you know these maps are wildly racially discriminatory, and yet, because of what the Supreme Court did in Rucho versus Common Cause, Mm-hmm. Uh, by greenlighting partisan gerrymandering, Republican map drawers around the country are simply de- defending those maps on the basis that, oh, we were just targeting Democrats, and mo- yes. they happen to be black, they happen to be Latino, they happen to be Asian, but we weren't targeting people because of their race, we were targeting them because of their partisanship, and they may just get away with it because of that, that gigantic loophole that the Supreme Court left. Yeah, it is kind of mind-blowing when you hear them arguing, no, it's not a racial gerrymandering, we're just trying to keep Democrats out of power. I mean, they're now, you know, saying that out loud. For example, you know, Texas picked up two seats this uh, this cycle in the congressional uh, uh, maps uh, because of their increased population since the 2010 census. Uh, that, that increase in their population in Texas is said to be about 98 percent due to growth in the minority population, people of color, largely Hispanic and, and black and so forth. And yet the state's new map actually adds two new white majority districts and if i recall it actually removed at least one uh, majority african american congressional district in the state might have been the only one in texas if i'm remembering correctly but uh, is texas making the argument that those were not racial gerrymanders those are just gerrymanders to help the republican party therefore they're just fine under federal law that is exactly the argument that they're making in fact they're claiming that they didn't look at race at all when drawing the maps they drew them on a race-blind basis, and and they were simply considering politics, and yet these quote-unquote race-blind maps are hugely discriminatory. Mm-hmm. You know, they not only fail to create a new Latino seat in Dallas or a new Latino seat in Houston, they actively dismantled other emerging coalition districts in the suburbs of Houston and suburbs of Dallas, and they actually go backwards. And it's it's incredible the degree to which they, they do this, and they're defending it solely on the basis of the politics, even though the groups that power Texas's growth were underrepresented before. They're even more underrepresented now. Mm. I, and I'm wondering, you know, how hamstrung that now makes, uh, well, Democrats or at least, you know, voting rights experts, uh, you know, how hamstrung are they now when it comes to bringing these cases? I note that the DOJ has brought a case in Texas. They're, they're challenging those districts in federal court, as I understand it, not on the basis of uh, being partisan gerrymanders, but that they violate the Voting Rights Act because they are racial gerrymanders. The Supreme Court has not yet 
anyway, said that they would uh, not hear such cases. But these cases tend to take a long time at the federal level, it seems to me. I know that some cases, you know, heard over the past decade only came after like one or two or three House election cycles before they were eventually deemed to be uh, unlawful racial gerrymanders. So the damage was done essentially, before a court could ultimately rule on it. No? Do we have those same concerns when it comes to this uh, DOJ challenge in Texas? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, your DOJ and others have already signaled that they're not going to see changes to the maps for 2022, that it's simply too late, given how late the maps were passed and changes the maps for the 2022 elections in Texas. Instead, they're going to go for changes in 2024. And that's a reflection of the fact that race-based claims... ERA claims take a long time to litigate. They're hard, and they're expensive, and they're complicated, and inevitably there'll be appeals. And, you know, because the Supreme Court, just like it has in the partisan area, has sort of hamstrung this by really restrictively interpreting, like, when you get you can win a VRA suit, you have to show mm-hmm. so much. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to do, and so that's, those cases take a long time, and it may well be 2026 or beyond before there are fixes to the map. 2026 or beyond. So we're talking uh, to three electoral cycles will have taken place under what might ultimately be determined to be unlawful maps. That that's that's the way it's been in the past, and it's likely to be this time. You know, just given where we where we are, and and who knows what the Supreme Court will do ultimately with some of the questions that are going to come before. You know, Texas is already claiming that, you know, the VRA doesn't even apply to redistricting at all, and we'll see what the Supreme Court has to say about that. Uh, which then, of course, raises the question as to how far, uh, how important the, the, the passage of the uh, Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act uh, are to this issue. That's what the Senate is going to be having out this week. It does not look good, even though all uh, 50 Republicans claim to support both of those bills. Neither Joe Manchin or Kirsten Sinema is willing to change the Senate rules in order to actually pass them. But if they were to be passed, Michael Lee, do they include tools that could actually undo the rigging of the maps that the GOP is now putting in place? Or would we also be looking at, you know, years of litigation before uh, any of this could actually, uh, you know, take effect? Well, the the bill, which is the two bills, which are now one bill, the Freedom to Vote John Lewis Act, mm-hmm. would be a game changer. Um, they would transform redistricting. Uh, you know, there would be a ban against partisan gerrymandering in congressional redistricting. It would be easy to calculate and to figure out whether a map violates that, and if a map does, then it's blocked from use pretty automatically, perhaps even in time for 2022, if Congress were to pass it soon. Mm. And it also strengthens other protections for communities of color. And so it's a really important piece of legislation. It would cut off the escape valve of claiming, oh, we were just being partisan. Well, guess what? Being part, just being partisan is also would also <laughs> be illegal now, right? And so yep. it, it would be a game changer, for, you know, not only for partisan fairness, but also for racial fairness in the country's maps. And the Congress needs to do something, and they're taking up debate now. We'll see where they get, but they, they cannot stress enough, like, how important it is, you know, you know, people of color last decade were 100% of the country's population growth. Mm-hmm. Um, that's only going to accelerate in coming decades. And really, this is a critical updating of voting rights laws for the 21st century, but Congress needs to act in the East soon. Which is why it is so maddening uh, where they now are. And with even though 50, all 50 uh, Republican senators are voting against 
it's the two Democrats that you know refuse to change the filibuster that is actually uh, dooming this uh, the, these measures. If if in fact that happens, uh, Michael Lee, before I let you go, I I, I want to ask you write at your Washington uh, Post piece last week. Uh, quote: Democrats, of course, are not above gerrymandering in Illinois and possibly in New York. Democrats are moving to entrench their own power, though nationally, Democrats control. Uh, line drawing for only 75 seats compared to 187 that Republicans control. Happily, you write, a handful of states have moved away from extreme gerrymandering in Michigan and California. Independent commissions produced fair and competitive maps that represent the changing country. In recent months, I've actually made an argument, Michael, that I never thought I would have made in my 20 years of covering elections and election integrity and so forth, and that is that given the threat now posed to American democracy itself, sort of what you heard Charles Freed talk about at the, at, at, uh, the previous uh, segment there, that with that threat to American democracy itself, Democrats should not unilaterally disarm, that losing the House in 2022 could be a death blow for democracy itself in 2024, never mind the Democrats, but for democracy itself, And therefore, Democrats, where they can, should, in fact, gerrymander as aggressively as Republicans are currently doing. Now, I hate that position. It's one I never thought I would take. But now I have taken that, uh, Michael. Why am I wrong uh, if I am, you know, worried less about partisan division, uh, you know, at the state by state level, including for GOP voters who, who, you know, live in so-called blue states who would be shut out? Why am I wrong if I'm worried less about that than I am about the need for Democrats to hold the House, not to save themselves, but to save American small-D democracy itself? Well, you know, if you look at states where Democrats have gerrymandered either heavily like Illinois or lightly like New Mexico, you know, Democrats have tended to spread their voters out really thin. And so they may not be very good gerrymanders, which is to say, when you draw gerrymander, you don't draw districts that your party wins by 80% because then you're using your voters inefficiently. What you want to do is draw a bunch of districts that your party wins by, say, 52 or 53%. Mm-hmm. But you can get too thin and you can get too clever and end up having dummy manders. And many people said what the Democrats did in Illinois is a dummy mander, that it may not hold. Mm. Um, but Democrats did that because they, they only control 75 seats, so they're desperate to try to eke out any additional seat that they can get. But you can sometimes end up hurting yourself. Um, and many people have said, like in Illinois, the map, you know, might you might lose Democratic seats, even if Republicans have a modestly good year, not a Republican wave, a modestly good year. Contrast that to California, where, you know, Democrats have picked up seats in California under last decade's commission-drawn maps, in part because Democrats, it turns out, were overprotecting incumbents. You know, Democratic incumbents wanted really safe seats. The commission mm. didn't pay attention to politics. It drew a map that had a lot more competitive districts. Mm. And guess what? In California, that, that inures to the benefit of Democrats. And so... You know, the idea that commissions produce bad maps for Democrats, California proves that that's not true. And like Illinois proves that sometimes, you know, gerrymandering isn't everything that you Mm. think it is. Uh, Fair enough. I guess, you know, I just I have some fear when I read uh, about these experts, uh, you know, the uh, Cook political report and and so forth, these nonpartisan experts. I have some fear, you know, that experts such as yourself, to some degree, myself are underestimating the moment that we are all now facing on these matters. It's one of the reasons I wanted to play Charles Freed there at the top. I I feel like 
in, in a perfect world, we would all sort of be in agreement, uh, those of us who actually do care about democracy and that we want fair districts everywhere. Do you get the sense that uh, folks like yourself, your colleagues, appreciate the danger that we are now facing, uh, as I see it, in this country? I, I think people live with that every day, particularly people of color. I mean, I think it's a really hard moment right now, um, again, particularly for people of color, because mm -hmm. these attacks really are an attack on the emerging multiracial America. Um, they're rooted in racial resentment and they're coming from a very dark and dangerous place, which is why something like the Freedom to Vote John Lewis Act would create a level playing field, right? It, the same rules apply in every state, so you wouldn't have this disparity. And that's why that, that is sort of like the right vehicle for trying to move the country forward. Because if we had a world where you couldn't discriminate against people of color, you couldn't like dismantle these diverse districts in the suburbs, you know, Republicans ultimately would either have to learn to put together their own multiracial coalitions or they would lose power. And, you know, a Republican Party that is committed to doing what Republicans said in 2013 after the 2012 election, hey, we're going to become, you know, a multiracial party. We're going to reach out to black voters and Latino voters and Asian voters. If, if that were the Republican Party and you were competing, like, it would be a very different looking Republican Party. Mm -hmm. And it would be ultimately good for Republicans. It would be good for, for democracy and good for the country as a whole. But as long as they can sort of try to kick the can down by down the road by saying, you know, we're going to, you know, like, you know, target communities of color for daring to vote for Raphael Warnock, you know, like black voters in Georgia dared to vote for Raphael Warnock. Now we're going to come and we're going to punish you. Yep. As long as that world exists, you know, we're, we're in a very dangerous place. We are in a very dangerous place. And uh, God forbid we should have the same rules in every state or as Republicans call it, a federal takeover of democracy by Democrats so they can steal elections. Whatever nonsense. Uh, boy, I just hope uh, folks like yourself uh, can, can somehow help this nation survive. Michael Lee, he's the senior counsel for the Brennan Center's Democracy Program, where he is a redistricting expert. Uh, really appreciate your help today on this and uh, appreciate you countering that uh, notion by a lot of folks that, oh, things aren't that bad. Yeah, they are that bad, and <laughs> we need to keep up the fight. Michael Lee, thanks uh, a great deal for joining us today, sir. Yeah, glad to, glad to do it. Okay, quick break. Uh, we are back with some breaking news coming in as I was speaking with uh, Councillor Lee there. That is straight ahead. In the few minutes we have left on the broadcast, <laughs> yeah. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. Our nightmare election may be over, but new ones are on the way. Here at the Bradcast and Bradblog.com, we fight for election integrity all year around like no other media outlet in the nation. But of course, we need your help to help us remain on your public airwaves and completely independent. Please help us continue that fight over your public airwaves by stopping by bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Oh, that moon has been arising for quite some time now. Indeed it has. Welcome back to the broadcast, Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Uh, this just in while I was speaking with Michael Lee there. Breaking news, the House Committee investigating the Capitol insurrection issued a new batch of subpoenas on Tuesday to some of Donald Trump's closest advisors, including Rudy Giuliani. Mm. 
As the committee inches closer to the former president, AP reports, the committee is continuing to widen its scope into Trump's orbit. This time it's demanding information and testimony from Giuliani, from Jenna Ellis. Remember her? That uh, attorney that I I don't know what's wrong with her. Uh, Sidney Powell. We all know that attorney. The Kraken lady. Yeah, we all know what's wrong with her. And Boris Epstein, who used to work in the uh, Trump administration, went on to be uh, Sinclair Broadcasting's... um, Propagandist? On-air liar. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So uh, all four apparently publicly defended the president and his baseless voter fraud claims in the months after the 2020 election. The uh, according to uh, Mississippi Congressman Benny Thompson, the Democrat who chairs the House Select Committee on the January 6th attack, said in a statement, the four individuals we've subpoenaed today advanced unsupported theories about election fraud, pushed efforts to overturn the election results or were in direct contact with the former president about attempts to stop the counting of electoral votes. In other words, they were all involved in Donald Trump's attempt to steal the 2020 election, says me, not Benny Thompson, but I hope you will soon. The committee said it's seeking records and deposition testimony from Giuliani in connection to his promotion of election fraud claims on behalf of Trump. The panel is also seeking information about Giuliani's reported efforts to persuade state legislatures to take steps to overturn the election results. You know, to take steps to steal the election. That just in today. I'm sure we'll have more on that as uh, that story develops in the next few hours and days as everything continues to develop. we got to get out. Uh, my thanks once again to Brennan Center's Michael Lee and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. Hey, while you're there, please consider hitting that donate button to help Desi and I stay on your public airwaves as long as we possibly can. You Or you can go straight to bradblog.com slash donate. Drop me email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. Yes, I read them all, and I try to reply to as many as I can. You can also find me on the Facebooks and the Twitters at TheBradBlog. We will see you there. Until we see you here next time, hopefully tomorrow, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. (laughs) 